Welcome to another episode of the Dads on the Fly podcast, a podcast all about inspiring and encouraging dads and anglers as we wade through fishing, parenting, and faith on the fly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 55 of the Dads on the Fly podcast. Coming up in today's episode, we interview Mr. Wade Blevins. Wade is a fourth-generation fly fisherman. He has some wonderful stories, uh, some of them very humorous and some uh, a little bit more serious. And he also has the story of the creation of what we think is the most versatile fly in fly fishing, and that's the Sam's One Bug. It's a wonderful conversation that we have with Wade as we discuss the creation of this bug and also the story that goes into it now. So enjoy this conversation with Wade. We had a lot of fun with it. And before we dive into today's episode, we just want to thank all the folks out there that continue to rate and review the podcast. If you haven't done it yet, we would highly appreciate it if you took the time to go leave us a rating or a review. We also want to thank a sponsor. Uh, One of our favorite sponsors is our fly tying tool sponsor. That is Anadromous Fly Company. You can check them out at A Fly Co. for any fly tying tools and scissors that you may need at the Anadromous Fly Company, your sharpest decision in fly tying tools. All right, let's dive into our conversation with Mr. Wade Blevins. Okay, folks, welcome tonight to episode, what are we at, 55 of Dads on the Fly, Caleb, and tonight we have with us a special guest. Uh, We have talked so much, you and I, about our second year of the podcast being more intentional with our guests and really searching for guests who are A, fly fishermen, or B, dads, or three men of faith, and tonight we have hit the trifecta, as I like to call it. <laughs> so we have hit the trifecta with our guest, who has just an awesome story. Um, I, I, we found our guest tonight, actually heard him on another podcast that we, we enjoy listening to, and uh, we thought that his story and what he does is just such a cool thing that we hope that our listeners would just really resonate with us. So Caleb, just tell everybody tonight, who we have the privilege of talking with. Yeah, we uh, we found Mr. Wade Blevins through the Storied Outdoors podcast. I want to give those guys a shout out and just thank them for sharing your story, Wade. And we we were so, Joshua listened to it first and he sent it to me and was like, man, you got to listen to this guy. You got to check out this story. This is so cool what he has done and what they have built. And uh, so, Wade, thank you for spending some time with us. Yeah, thank you for having me on, guys. I, I was pretty excited when you reached out to me. And as you mentioned, you know, Brian and Brad have, have become what I would consider good friends. And it's been amazing to uh, kind of get to see and meet some of the people on social media. Um, the you know, silly little bug has, has, you know, helped me do that. And uh, But they, they did a great job of just kind of getting my story out there. And so I appreciate you guys listening and appreciate you bringing me on. Well, thanks for being with us. So you mentioned it, a silly little bug. Uh, you are the, you're not the creator, but you continue the tradition of the Sam's One Bug. That's so correct. we, we want to dive into that story for sure, Wade. But before we dive into the story of the Sam's One Bug, we would just love, first of all, tell us a little bit about your fishing journey and how you got into fly fishing and also into tying flies. All right. Well, with a name like Wade, it's kind of hard not to be drawn to water. Um, my mom and dad, you know, they 
they love the outdoors and uh, we weren't exactly, I would say wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but a lot of what we did as an extracurricular activity was just getting outside and doing things. Um, my father was a fisherman, fly fisherman uh, from very early on. And his dad was a fly fisherman and his grandfather was a fly fisherman all, uh, all the way back. They kind of grew up in uh, Rolla, Missouri, Arkansas, uh, parts of Oklahoma, um, and fished a lot of the creeks around there and small streams, lakes, things like that for smallmouth. That was their go-to, brim and smallmouth. And um, my dad, this is kind of going back a, a little bit further, uh, his first experience with a fly rod, um, they were, my grandfather and his father were in the stream together fishing and my dad was around with a little cane pole and uh, he wanted to try fly fishing. And so they, they got him a fly rod, put it together. And it was an old bamboo style rod with just a, a click and paw reel. And my grandfather would always either have a chaw of tobacco in his mouth or smoke a pipe. And um, my, his father would always chew tobacco. But um, one of the things he always saw, my dad always saw my grandfather do was spit on the fly. And um, sometimes the fly would go past him and he'd spit. And my dad thought he was spitting on the fly as the, as the popper went past him. And so, you know, dad was saying all this stuff to my, my great-grandfather. And so they gave him a chaw of, of tobacco and he stuck it in his cheek and uh, he was trying to figure out how to cast and do it all at the same time. And he was about to spit on a fly and he swallowed it. Oh, and he, he's, he started turning, you know, getting real sick. And when the fly came back forward, it stuck him right in the ear and pierced him in the ear. And even, even when I knew him, you know, he had a scar, he had a knot in the, in the back of his ear where it stuck in his ear. And, um, he's, of course he swallowed that tobacco and it threw, he started throwing up and got pretty sick, but, uh, ended up catching a lot of fish that day, but he, he wrote about that in a story. And um, so they had a passion for tying their own flies um, and, you know, fishing their own bugs. And, and it just kind of followed down the trail. And so growing up, my dad would take me to small creeks, um, ponds. Uh, we had a couple of lakes that were nearby our home that um, close to the Tennessee River that were spring fed big huge what we called blue holes back then that uh, just beautiful places to fish and i was you know really young and we we would ride around in a on a motorcycle we'd ride around in, in an old pickup truck and uh just go out on these what's called now the national wildlife refuge to these different places and find places to fish and and for years i would just fish with a cane pole or a little uh like a zebco push button actually it was a johnson push button reel with a an old kind of a, I don't know if it was a, can't remember what kind of rod it was. It seemed like it was indestructible. You know, it got slammed in the tailgate a few times, probably an ugly stick. But um, anyway, we'd catch fish. And um, I think I told the guys on the Storied Outdoors, my dad was a shop teacher. Um, both, all my entire family were teachers. My grandfather, um, uh, grandmother, my aunt and uncle, my dad, um, my mom, my mom taught art for 33 years. My dad taught shop and middle uh, seventh and eighth grade math and science. And um, so through yeah, through all of that. Josh was a middle school it, social studies teacher. So he's over here like loving that. Nice. Okay. So they always had the summers off. 
right? So we'd have three months off in the summer and, and usually you know, every weekend too. And um, so we spent a lot of time just, you know, getting out, going to national parks, going to state parks. Anytime we went on a trip, it seemed like we were always exploring some other park somewhere. It was like a little game, you know, taking it off the map. And um, everywhere we went, there was always a tackle box and, and flies or fishing poles or something with us. It didn't matter where we went. It was always part of, of his arsenal. But he had made a he made a lot of trinkets, I would say. They were um, hand-carved candlesticks, uh, just walking sticks, puzzles, all kinds of stuff. And he had uh, made a, a deal with a gentleman at Buster's Bait and Tackle off of uh, Clinton Avenue and Governor's Drive in Huntsville. And uh, went in there, and they, they it was just an old bait shop, uh, but they had tackle and new rods there and snacks and all kinds of stuff. And um, on the wall, they had these cards, and I wish I could still find some that were, you know, they're original, but they were cards of, um, and I don't know if they were Bob's poppers or ultimate poppers, but they were there'd be a card and there'd be 24 poppers on a card and some of them would be different colors. They'd be gray or bright yellow or orange or white. And they all look like they're hand painted and, but beautiful poppers. There were, you know, there you could find bets and stuff like that there too. But these, this particular type of popper was just, you know, they were beautiful. And my dad kind of liked that style anyway. And so, uh, he had negotiated a deal and, and ended, up, ended up walking out of there with a rod, some wine, um, two cards of those poppers, a couple of oatmeal pies and a couple of grape sodas. And I think he got some uh, Marlboros out of the deal. And I told the guys on the other show that, hey, when we w- walked out, he said, let's get in the truck before he changes his mind. And uh, <laughs> And I thought that just stuck in my head and. So we got in the truck and, and headed on down the road and went to a place called Lady Ann Lake. And um, before it was, um, now it's a, it's like a home, big subdivision and an apartment complex called Sun Lake. But back then it, there were lots and lots of dead timber in this lake, um, lots of lily pads. Um, there was a like a trail, a little road that went all the way around the lake. There used to be a train out there too. They tried to make it into a theme park, but they couldn't get the swamp out of the lake. Um, They sunk a couple of big uh, cranes and machinery in the lake and the mud because of the silt from the springs. And Huntsville is known for the caving system. Uh, The National Speleological Society was, uh, their headquarters was in Huntsville for years. I don't know if it still is. But it, this whole area is, is built on caves and those two giant springs that fed that lake, uh, anything that would go down into the bottom of that lake would just get bogged down. And so they could never get the lake cleared out to do some of the things that they wanted to do. And another contractor years later came in there and tried to clear it out. But it, it looked like something out of, um, I don't know, a cypress swamp or something in Florida. Beautiful, uh, just crystal clear water. Um, but it was a lot of, like I said, dead standing timber. And he got that rod, rigged it all up, and, and we stood there, and, and, man, we caught tons of big bluegill uh, on that fly rod and lots of little bass and stuff like that. And, I, and ever since then, I was just hooked on it. That, um, that was sort so of that. your moment for, for the fly fishing. And how old were you, a young kid then? Or? I was. Um, back then, I was – 
probably under the age of six, I guess. You know, I don't really know exactly when I know that we, we moved from the house that we were in, um, to where closer to where my mom taught school when I was seven, six, seven years old. And so it was somewhere along that timeline because before that, you know, we would, we would just spend a lot of days on adventures going out from that other home. And so you and your dad developed this bond over fishing. I'm sure there was other things, but that was seems to be your thing you were doing with him. And uh, did you, have you just, I know we'll talk more about that relationship and what you do with the Samson bug, but have you fished ever since? Never put it down? Pretty or? much. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think I've ever put it down. I actually, um, I tried tournament fishing uh, in the early and late 80s and into the, you know, beginning like 1990, 1991. Uh, we always made just enough money to get to the next tournament. Um, and, you know, we had a, had a little boat that uh, people thought we had put an oversized engine on because it was just a rocket out of the hole and, um, but I got disqualified in, um, I think it was 1987, might've been 86 for fishing with a nine foot fly rod. It was a, a heavy weight fly rod. Um, and back then the tournament series, they would not allow a fly rod on the tournament trail, really? uh, which now they will. But if you fish with a fly rod, it's required to be under eight feet. There's a certain, I think, eight foot four is the the cutoff. So back then, um, Gunnersville, you guys probably know this, is it it had uh, milfoil in it, but you didn't find a lot of the hydrilla back then. You didn't find a lot of the coontail moss. It was it was a true milfoil matted grass, and these fish would blow up and leave holes in the mat. You know, big big open holes that look like maybe a, a fifty gallon bucket or something. You know. And so a lot of these guys would get in the front of the boat and they'd throw these uh, rats, these plastic frogs and rats and bring them across that mat. And a fish would blow up on it and knock the frog five or six feet away. And I thought, man, you know, there's two ways to, to tackle this. So I went back home and I started tying frog, or mice. And uh, I don't mean to go off screen here, but I used to tie these um, deer hair mice and I would make them weedless and and things like that. And so I'd fish those rats out on the grass because I could place it right in those, you know, big open holes. So as soon as the plastic rat would get pulled off that mat, well, he'd have to reel it all the way in and just pick up a fly rod, cast it out there and let it right in the hole. And nine times out of 10, they'd blow up on it. And then of course, with a fly rod, you know, you're just, constantly putting pressure on it you'd have to take the boat in there to try to get the fish out of the grass but <laughs> anyway fantastic. we, so we had a huge stringer of fish that uh, i mean with literally five fish that was pushing 27 pounds and, that's fantastic um you know and, and I, I thought i got this thing sewn up i'm, I'm gonna win this tournament and they disqualified me for using a fly rod <laughs> so you're so you're me. using a I mean, this is just crazy to me. In general, you're fishing all these tournaments with a fly rod while these rest of these guys are using conventional tackle. Well, I was using both. Okay. I, so I, I I was a conventional tackle guy. As yeah, well. for sure. And I didn't know you couldn't use a fly rod. So I, just, <laughs> I was putting two and two just, together. Just going, another weapon in the arsenal. I love it. Fish, right? I love so, it. Uh, but yeah, that I, later on, I, I figured out a way to um, take the saltwater steel leaders, a light wire uh, leader. 
and connect it off of the back of the first rat and leave about four feet to the second rat. And so cast that out there on a bait caster and bring that first one across. And if they missed it, you just move the rod over, you drag that second one back in. That's uh, probably giving away some trade that, secrets. That is guys. that is impressive. I mean, that's, <laughs> there's, there's, that is there's probably guys that's that, intense. You know, they're going to be like, I'm on that tomorrow. So. <laughs> they're gonna, they're gonna, yeah, I'm going to say they're going to make sure they I got eight-foot rods. I should have patented that deal. That um, is really cool. So would you say that most of your fishing uh, early on in – through your childhood, early years, and even some return fishing, it's mostly warm water. Have you done majority warm water fishing, or uh, based on where yeah. you live? It, it was a combination of, of a little bit of both. But um, dad, growing up in Missouri, there were a lot of big springs in that area, so we would go back to like Montauk and Mammoth, and uh, go to Arkansas to the White and the Norfolk and the Red. Um, so I, I did some trout fishing. I, I was fortunate enough as a kid uh, for like 15 and 16 to be able to fish dry run kick, creek, which if you have kids, guys, you need to take them out there before they turn 16 years old. No, there's, somebody the who sent, there's somebody who sent us a DM on Instagram that Absolutely. we've got to get there because it's t- – tell us, just explain it. You. you yeah, so the state came in years ago, and, and there's a group called Friends of Dry, Dry Run Creek that uh, Dave Whitlock was involved in helping redesign the creek. It is a hatchery-fed, spring-fed creek that they the tubes literally come straight out of the hatchery into the creek, dump into the water. They redid the entire bottom of the stream for uh, structure and habitat and uh, hiding places for the fish and runs and pools. And, and it's got a little trail all up the side of it, but it also has um, docks that are wheelchair and handicap accessible for kids that might not be able to, or anyone actually it's, it's anyone who's handicapped or if you're under 16 and it's catch and release only, but guys, there's 30 pound fish in that Creek. Wow. I mean, there there's tanks in that Creek and, um, it is the most amazing thing in the world to watch those fish jump the falls down below the road coming out of Norfolk and up the creek. And they actually have cameras that you can watch the fish online when they're migrating. And so, you know, there's been times where that creek has been so full of fish. I bet you could have walked across it, across the backs of the fish. Wow. That's incredible. It's just, it's amazing. We'll have to put that on the must do for the kids when they, yeah, yes, say, well, we absolutely. Get before they're 16. Take a sure. big, big bass net <laughs> and have <laughs> one person help the kid, you know, mend and drift and, and fish and another person downstream with a net. That's just, the only, that only way. That's, yeah. only way to do that's it. all you need. That is so, insane. So just go back a little bit before we're going to get into Sam's one bug for sure, but just, Warm water fly, because I think Caleb and I, have, most of our experience is cold water trout fishing. Water, um, sure. We're we're trying to get more into, I think we've kind of overlooked warm water trout fish or warm water fly species. fishing species when we, I don't know, when you start out, you become a trout bum and everybody around you is trout fishing, trout fishing, and you're in trout mecca right here in West North Carolina and everybody's talking about this blue ribbon stream or this little blue blue line, you can go up and catch native brook trout and everything Well, and else. just, I think naturally when you think fly fishing, you think 
you think trout, you think cold water, you know, you think river runs through it, you think all these different things. And, uh, <laughs> and Josh was right. I think we missed out on kind of the warm water bite in a lot of ways. We're trying to get into that. We've been chasing smallmouths on this year, which has been a lot of fun. Um, yeah. and, uh, we're still, we're still learning a lot. So we might just have you stick around here for a little bit after we finish recording to sure. get all your, all your secrets. But I, I do love the warm water fishing. And so, so that's been your, most of your experience. Yeah. So I, I think I sent you guys a couple of stickers of the, the gateway, the gateway drug. drug. Right? I love that. Yeah. The red breast. And, um, you know, I would say the majority of fly fishermen, uh, you know, well, I can't say that. There's probably a lot of guys that start on trout, but I, I would say that many, many fly fishermen, their first fish on a flower rod was probably a sunfish, a brim. Um, and because it's, you know, when they're on bed, they're easy to find, they're easy to smell, easy to locate. You can throw pretty much anything out there and they're going to hit it, right? So um, that was my dad's favorite game fish, period. And we had a couple of ponds that we were able to fish that there were brim in those ponds the size of a Dixie plate. And wow. you get one of those on a, on a three weight fly rod and it's running 90 degrees from you. It's like pulling a frying pan through the water. And he loved that more than anything. I mean, he would fish for brim any given day over bass, salt water, trout, whatever it was. And, if he had the opportunity to go catch big brim or shell cracker, he was on it. And that's See, that, what he was. That's so, like you say that word shell cracker, I haven't heard it in forever, but I feel like that we grew up doing that more where we grew up in South Carolina, fishing ponds, fishing mm -hmm. a lot of still water. We were just well, doing we just it didn't have cold water. Zebcos and didn't get the fly fishing bug until we got up here to the mountains. But I, I can think how fun that would be catching those things. And it's awesome that you say, I think sometimes on this podcast, we talk a lot about trout because that's what we we chase a lot and but we do have more and more people listening and i say look we've, we've kind of gotten to tell people go find your species don't be afraid of what's right there and, and you're talking yeah, way about right. how awesome that fishery was that little pond when you were a kid those experiences with your dad catching those big fish on those three weight rods and it's like we tell you all the time my 10 year old he don't care if we're what we're catching. If it's pulling on that as fly rod, he, he's loving it, right? That's right. And my boys used to say all the time, Dad, when we go and catch it. It wasn't fishing. It was <laughs> when we go and catch it. That's awesome. Um, but so I had a fly shop in Huntsville, um, Alabama, 1995 through 97. And um, we were the third Orvis dealer in the city of Huntsville before there were retail box stores, the big stores. Because otherwise you had to go to Roanoke or, you know, various other places to go to an Orvis shop. Um, and so we were an authorized, full authorized dealer. And people would come in all the time. Where in the world do you go fly fishing in Alabama? You know, because, again, it was the mentality of trout. And, you know, I got I got the, uh, I don't know, it, it, it kind of stuck people knew that I would say it after a while is, Hey, if I thought there were, there were fish in the toilet, I'd, I'd fish in the toilet every day. You know, I mean, anywhere there's water, I'm going to try to put a fly in it. And you know, if it's a tiny little Creek off of a feed off somewhere or, or just a, whatever it may be, there's likelihood that there's fish in it because birds fly around, they transplant eggs. I mean, it's, it's, 
there's a likelihood that there's fish there. And even if it's just a small, you know, fish, I, I get enjoyment out of finding fish in the craziest places. So um, I think that was one of the reasons we were successful in that our first two years of business, we actually turned a profit, which they told us don't expect anything your first three years in, in, in a store. And unfortunately my proprietor, the gentleman that was uh, providing money for the store, uh, he had a, a disability that was providing him income through a, a trade company um, that once they found out that we turned a profit, they said, hey, we see you have another source of income. We're going to cut out your disability. And he's like, heck no. Next day, there was a sign on the door that said closed for good. And, wow. And so I ended up taking a lot of that stuff home. Uh, we sent a bunch of it back to all of us, but almost all the time material, uh, a few of the rods and reels and just stuff like that. I, I was selling out of a garage for years. <laughs> so it's kind of crazy to think about it now. But Well, we want to make sure to get into one of the main reasons that we got in touch with Wade. And so we're, we're going to take a short break, and we're going to come back uh, and let everybody hear the story of the Sam's One Bug. Um, I think by this point, folks, you understand that Wade's a very avid I would I would say close to professional. I mean, he fished on he fished on professional tournaments, right? And created his own style there. Uh, Careful, but, <laughs> but uh, angler, and he obviously has an awesome relationship um, with his family, and it, and it runs in his family fishing. So we want you all to hear what me and Caleb fell in love with the story of the Sam's One Bug. So we'll be right back to hear that how that story. <laughs> This episode of Dads on the Fly is brought to you by Rig Strips. Caleb, you know how after you get out on the water, you get your waders on, and you've rigged up that rod, and you forget something, and you lay that rod against the truck, and you're always wondering, man, I hope somebody doesn't slam that door on my rod, or maybe my rod falls over in the mud, or whatever. We found the solution, buddy. Yeah, man, we were so fortunate to receive a magnetic sun strip from Rig Strip, and these things are awesome. They're magnetic little uh, rod holders that connect right to the side of your rig, right to the side of your truck, and we can gear up, lay our rods against those things, and it is worry-free for the rest of the time as we finish gearing up. So, yeah, man, love these products, and uh, glad we got our hands on one. Yeah, it's great when you come back off of a long hike back to your car, and that Rig Strip's sun strip sitting right there you just lean that rod up while you're taking off your waders you don't have to worry about it falling or getting damaged yeah so make sure to check them out at rigstrips.com they've got a lot of great gear stuff that's going to protect your car and your gear so check them out at rigstrips r-i-g-s-t-r-i-p-s.com all right everyone we are back with mr wade blevins and wade we are excited to hear now the story of the sam's one bug so you told us in the first half of this episode about this legacy that was really developed in your family uh from i mean four generations and and now going on into five of fly fishing in your family uh and then really developing that close relationship with your father and then your father did something really special you he tied his own flies he tied his own bugs you guys loved fishing warm water and warm water poppers and he created something really special. So why don't you go ahead and just dive in and tell us the story of the Sam's sure. World Bug. I appreciate it. We, um, so we joined a club in Huntsville, Alabama early on called the uh, Tennessee Valley Fly Fishers. And I think we were probably maybe a year or less than six months from the actual 
foundation of the club. Um, so we kind of got in right as it was being formed and developed. And um, in that club, one of the things that was very popular was going to conclaves across the Southeast for the Federation of Fly Fishers back then. Now it's the International Federation of Fly Fishers or International, International Fly Fishers. And um, there's, the club still exists. It's called Tennessee Valley Fly Fishers. Um, and they still have meetings on every third Thursday of the month in Huntsville. And uh, they do tying on the, every second Thursday and every fourth Thursday. Um, they do some outings and, you know, things of that nature. And it's, it's still doing well. But a lot of the guys that I knew from that club have since come and gone. We were at um, – I, my first job was at a, a place called the Fisherman's Choice on South Parkway. And it was a tackle shop. And it was a well-known tackle shop because it carried a lot of the high-end baits and lures and reels and rods. Um, we were one of the first lose dealers in the state um, for a uh, lose speed spin when it came in. A lot of the rods, things like that. We had uh, uh, a lot of Falcon was a brand new brand right off the, the bat. Um, and so there were a lot of companies that, at the time that were just coming out that we carried and a lot of the pros would come in and visit with us. And, um, but we had a gentleman there, older gentleman who was in the club and worked with us who made these balsa poppers. Um, and his name was Walt Holman and the poppers that he made were all custom carved, hand painted, uh, multiple layers of epoxy. They were beautiful. But even then in you know the early eighties, they were four and five bucks sometimes seven bucks for a single popper. Wow. Can't which, imagine what you know, that'd be today. Yeah. So it was, and it was just his time that he put into them. And, and it was something that there weren't a lot of them. So when you got one, it was kind of a prized possession. And my grandfather used to make all of his own flies um, out of cork or out of balsa, carve them, put them together and put feathers on them. And a lot of times the dog would have bald patches on them because he would pull fluff out of the back of the dog and use it as tail on the on the poppers literally the that dog was black fantastic <laughs> so there, this dog had a little bald spot on his hip from where my grandfather kept pulling out little tufts of black hair and <laughs> retiring them on the end of these poppers um anyway that so dad never really got into making his own bugs but when he was in the club he got into tying flies and he had a vice but he never really used it and um, then when he got the hmh vice um, he really started tying flies and making all, just creating all kinds of stuff to fish for brim with. And we were at um, Joe Wheeler State Park um, for a southeastern fly fishing conclave. It was one of the first in a series and uh, warm water conclave for uh, bass, brim, and things of that nature. And the lower end of, of Wheeler is really good smallmouth fishing. There's uh, two big creeks that feed into it. It's close to the dam. There's a bluff that runs almost the full length of, down near the dam. And, um, and so we would go out in the boat and fish those bluffs. And my dad, um, because of his medical conditions, he had uh, some kidney issues that um, caused him to start losing all kinds of uh, muscle in his body and stuff. He lost his grip. He started losing his vision in some ways. And so we would make uh, rods that had extra large handles on him to help him grip them. He played tennis when he was a kid. So he would, he would put tennis wrap on the grip of the handle to help hold on to it, stuff like that. But his uh, distance, peripher uh, his 
distance would get off. And so he, because of his cataracts, he couldn't really see. And he'd cast that popper up there and it hit those rocks and it cracked. And those waltz poppers, it just infuriated him when it hit the rocks or a seawall or something and, and cracked that thing open. And so he's, he just kept thinking there's got to be a better way. And so there were a whole group of guys there at the show. Um, Fred Stevenson, who was the club president, who made a lot of his own custom rods. Um, Dale Clemens, who owned a company in Tullahoma, Tennessee, uh, Clemens Custom Tackle. He made his own rods. Uh, and then Walt was there and a couple other guys. And um, Dale came over to the to the table where my dad was. He said, hey, I heard you were having some problems with some of Walt's poppers. <laughs> and because uh, I had. I kind of, they asked me if I'd caught any fish and we caught a bunch of smallmouth, but I jokingly say, yeah, but dad broke all his poppers on the rocks. And so Dale came over and he had these um, sticks that were about the size of a number two pencil um, that were the cores that were drilled out for these saltwater rods. Uh, that back then they were using this um, heavy duty closed cell foam that uh, was made like out of polypropylene, I think, or polystyrene. I can't remember. No, it wasn't styrene because that'd be like foam uh, coolers. But this stuff was high density. And he said, you know, I've always thought these would make great poppers if you could figure out how to, you know, seal it and stuff like that. So um, he gave a bunch of it to my dad. Next thing I know, they were taking furious notes and writing down all kinds of stuff. And a few hours later, he was cranking out popping bugs that were really crude little foam popping bugs, you know, just tied down to a hook with some feathers on the back, but it had legs through it. And over time, he, he moved from just a traditional style popping bug to more of a bug that had a, a thorax and a body. So it had a segmented head and the thorax. And there were two reasons for it. One was to keep the, the foam on the hook, keep it from spinning as much. Um, and he'd slice the foam down the middle and set it on the hook and then use a thread base to build it up and seal it off. Um, and it sat in the water just different than any other popper. It, it gave the profile of kind of like a grasshopper sitting in the water. And man, I, it, you know, <laughs> I can remember going out and fishing cork poppers and dad throw that thing and he'd catch 10 to my one. And, I, and I'm like, what in the world? Why, why is this thing so much better than, than what we're throwing? And something about the way it sit and those rubber legs just bouncing on the surface, those fish couldn't stand it. And um, he always said it was a matter of patience between you and the fish because, you know, the fish was probably more patient than we were about sitting there looking at it. And uh, nine times out of ten, he'd cast it out there, let it sit there for 10, 15 seconds, let the rings dissipate. And about the time he was just about to move it, something would explode on it or just sip it off the surface. And, and I mean, there when we first started tying those things, he was catching these monster smallmouth on them, largemouth on them, just all kinds of stuff. And that's kind of how it got started. And, and then over the years, the foam has changed. It's, um, I still have some of the original foam. It's more kind of a shaggy, um, much longer very dense foam, but it didn't, it didn't seal well. Even with uh, super glue, sometimes it would separate or come apart. We were using um, dental glue at the time. It was a ceramic dental glue to put into the crease and then just spray it with an accelerator and heat up and seal. Um, and that helped for a long time. But 
Then Watsy, uh, a fly tying company out of Arkansas that sells wholesale to the shops, uh, all the fly shops around, um, came out with what was called um, Live Body. And it was uh, a little bit, it had air injected into it. So it was a little more squishy, if you will, and, um, but it would seal much better. And now, of course, you get, I think, four or five sticks in a pack that run four to five dollars for a pack back then my dad was buying bags of a thousand you know for uh, just dirt cheap and um, but it's uh, that the new foam floats a little bit higher floats a little bit better it's not as durable um, it, it doesn't last nearly as long I've got a few original flies that I know we caught over 200 fish on wow. I've got one in a frame up there that and I, I told the guys before on the other podcast that, you know, you get 50 fish out of a fly, that fly has served its purpose, right? Because most flies are not, especially a trout with teeth and stuff, most of them aren't going to last that long. So he wanted something that was more durable, easy to tie, um, and, you know, would catch fish. And so this, the foam kept, came in fish-friendly colors. Um, it, it was easy to tie, it, you know, something he wouldn't spend a whole lot of time on. I'm just gonna pause. Just worked. Just want to mention. I don't know. Uh, you're talking to a tire of eight months, so I don't know how easy to tie. I would call <laughs> what I've seen you do. Those things are very impressive. With uh, but I'm sure maybe I maybe with some tutelage I could be taught how to tie those suckers. Yeah. But where where did the the name? Just talk about the name. So it sure. he he tied these these poppers. They're a foam popper for you guys that haven't seen them. We'll, we'll we're gonna post them on our social media all week to to promo this episode and uh. But, but where did the name come from? Okay, so my dad has an older sister named Vita Joe, and her middle name is spelled J-O. Um, they thought she was going to be a boy, and so they were going to name him Joe, and so that became her name. Um, so it was Vita Joe. They thought my dad was going to be a, a girl, and they were going to name her Samantha. And um, But when he came out as a boy, they named him after my grandfather, my grandfather's name was Craig Marion. My dad's name was Craig Edward, but they called him Sam. So um, the nickname stuck. Um, and dad was out fishing. We were actually uh, in, gosh, we were fishing, I want to say Second Creek um, off a of Wheeler. And within just a few casts, I, I mean, guys, I, I mean, he caught, four or five smallmouth that were probably three to four pounds a piece. Wow. I don't know, probably 20 brim that some of the brim were anywhere from a, a good hand size brim. He had one that was probably pushing 12 inches, um, you know, and two large mouth that I know I saw and a drum all on this one, one fly. And, you know, he's sitting there and, and, and this is going to sound corny. He used to tell me these limericks all the time. And one of them he would write down and it, it would say CM Ducks or MR Ducks. Oh, CM yeah, MR Ducks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. MR not OSAR, yeah. LLB, MR Ducks. Anyway, so he would say that all the time. And he's like, golly, this is crazy. And he said, I only need one fly to catch all these fish and I can, I don't have to change it unless I break it off or, you know, it'll bounce off the walls and bounce off the rocks and bounce off the boat motor. 
you know, it's, <laughs> it floats like a cork. I can see it. And, and so it just, it became Sam's one bug. And then he had another one that had these big bug eyes on it. That was a basic piece of that foam. that was a round cut at a, a crosswise. And then he super glued uh, doll eyes on each side of it. And that thing on Gunnersville would just smoke the, the large mouth. And that one became known as L I B you know, just because he's, he, again, he said, L I B. That's good. Can't believe this thing's catching fish. And, That's great. Um, so he got that uh, published in the fly fishing and tying magazine in 2002. And the article uh, was published, um, I think it was two two page spread on how to tie it, what his story was behind it. Um, and it just took off from there. And people would ask him all the time, hey, where can I get some of these bugs? Do you sell them? And he, he'd say, well, you know, I'll tell you what, if you take me fishing, I'll, I'll give you some bugs. And it kind of became a bartering tool, much like the stuff he was, you know, making in the shop. And uh, it that was what stuck is he would people he'd give people bugs to either get access to their pond or their creek <laughs> that's fantastic or or go fishing with them and he he made a lot of really good friends over that silly little bug and i have too it's uh it's been incredible so tell us a little bit more about that part of the story the sam's one bug you know now it's like you said you can't you can't buy them anywhere you can't go online yeah. and, and order a dozen of them <laughs> uh but you can get your hands on some. And uh, we were fortunate enough to get our hands on some. And one of the things I love about it is that you, you're really following in your father's legacy of giving these things away. And, but you've also added, added some stuff to it as well. So tell us a little bit about, about that part of the Sam's One Bug story. Sure. So um, when Dad got, Dad got really sick early on, um, ended up needing a kidney. Uh, I was not a good candidate. That was all they really told me. I, I feel like some of it I probably blocked out over the years. Uh, really hit home and when I was about 45 and realized that um, the doctor said, hey, you only have one kidney. And I found out I, I was born with one kidney. Explains a lot of my medical history, a lot of my dad's medical history. Um, but he ended up on dialysis being on dialysis, um, he wasn't able to get out much. Uh, he had what was called brittle bone syndrome. The medicine he took for almost 30 years, took the calcium out of his bones and put it into his arteries. He actually had to have a bypass and they went in to take an artery out of his leg. And when they tried to clamp the artery off, the forceps broke, uh, snapped in half. And so they backed out of that. They put a stent in, um, and he was fine. He just, you know, had to deal with it through medicine and other stuff over time, but he could step off of a curb and break his foot, things like that. And um, he ended up having a C4, C5 vertebrae collapse. And it just, I mean, it literally just crumbled into pieces and um, he ended up paralyzed from the shoulders down and he just didn't want to live on a machine for the rest of his life. And he and my mom had already kind of worked through that, but, it was difficult for me. I, I had a very, very difficult time with it. I was ready to take him home, care for him, but it wasn't what he wanted. And so when he passed away, that was in 2005, just a few days after his birthday. My son, my oldest son was born October 11th. Um, 
my dad was born October 14th. And um, so we had had a birthday party at the farm uh, that weekend, that Sunday. And, and that was the last time I fished with him. Uh, we actually went out to a little pond and, and my boys and my dad all caught these brim. And, uh, you know, we, we were having a good time. And, uh, but he was having this headache and just pain, couldn't sleep. And then that week, that week he uh, went into the hospital with it and they were uh, trying to get him into a CT machine and he fell and it just it broke it and collapsed. And so from that point on, he and I had had a lot of discussions about faith. Um, I had joined a church uh, locally here through a job I had uh, as a pest control technician. I was actually working in a corporate office. And the gentleman that owned the company, John Cook Sr., uh, poured out his testimony when I first started working at Cook's um, and shared the gospel uh, very clearly. I'd had a lot of, I've been to a lot of churches with friends and stuff like that over the years, almost every denomination you could ever imagine uh, Lutheran, Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, whatever it was. And, and Dad and I always just, Dad's theory early on was, you know, I could have a closer relationship with God on the creek somewhere or on a lake than I could through a church. And, you know, we, we kind of thought that way growing up and him dialyzing every Sunday because he was a school teacher. We just didn't go to church. And um, when I got involved in the church and really became active in the church, I've, I've had a conversation with him before he passed away saying, you know, dad, you and I are the hypocrites. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, the church is full of great people. They're, it's also full of sinners, just like you and I. And um, and so we we went through that whole conversation, and and he started attending church with my mom at a little Methodist church down the road from their house, and then they would come down to Decatur and attend our church too. And he got actively involved in it, and I knew his faith was it was really growing. He knew a lot about the Bible already, but. Um, I knew his faith was actively growing then. So that when all of that happened, it took me a long time to um, really deal with losing him. And, and I, I struggled with it for years. Um, and I was still time flies. Like I said, it, I, in 95 through 97, I was at the shop. I was fishing all the time. I was still time flies. We'd been tying this fly since the late 80s. Um, he started tying it probably in the early 80s, 82 to 84 is really when it when it took off. And um, so I'd, I had tied them, but I would give them away to friends, you know, because I, I enjoyed watching them catch a fish on something that I had created and the enjoyment, just seeing, you know, how much fun they were having. And, you know, it was, it was something cool about it. And but I never wanted to. When, when he passed away, I never wanted to just give it up. I'd had the opportunity to talk with Umqua and Orvis about, you know, putting the fly out there, but I didn't want to just, you know, only get like 8% on a, on a fly even back, back then. I think it was four and a half, maybe five, and not do something with it. And then the more I got thinking about it, I thought, you know, he gave these things away all the time. Um, and it started friendships. How can I give this away and at the same time tell the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, my Lord and Savior? Because he, he saved me through uh, just drawing me to himself. And there are just a lot of things that were going on. And 
you know, and I, I knew then that was the message that was most important. So, you know, thinking about God's grace and what he did for me and the gift of salvation, I wanted to be able to use this bug and say, look, it's a free gift. Because this, I mean, it's a crazy world, guys. There's stuff going on in this world that's just, just nuts sometimes. And, you know, for people, people don't expect it to be free. When, when you say, hey, give me, a, give me a name and an address or an email and an address. I'll send you some information on it. Um, I'll send you some bugs. And, and they expect to pay something. And so this gives me an opportunity to share something with them that was something my dad created. I can keep his name alive in it and keep, you know, telling people the story behind it. At the same time, I can tell them who my real father is um, and, and share the gospel. And then at that point, whether they accept it or not, that's on me. You know, I mean, it, it's that's between them and God. I'm just here to be a friend. I can, I'll answer any questions they might have if they want to carry on a conversation about it. And I encourage anybody to pick up the Bible and just read it. Um, you know, you, you'll gain so much wisdom. I, I made a post just a few days ago on my personal account that there's there's a lot that can be gained from just one sentence in the Bible. I've read lots and lots of books. My wife's a huge reader, but there's more wisdom in one sentence in the Bible. And sometimes it'll impact your life more so than an entire book or a novel or anything. And, and it hits home even today, 2000 years later, it, it hits home even today. And so that's, that's the ultimate goal is to be able to share the message of what God did for me, what Jesus did for me through the gospel and provide that story. Uh, and so my tagline now is, you know, um, one bug at a time uh, and sharing the gospel, the greatest story ever told one bug at a time. Man, I love that way. And uh, I, I think it's super cool what you've done um, and what you're continuing to do. And, I don't, I don't know how we follow that. Just, yeah, I, mean, I don't either. It was um, just mic drop right there, but I do have a couple other questions for you, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I just think there's so many uh, just, um, you know, just redemptive parts of that story and uh, which, you know, you, you talked about really struggling with losing your dad um, and having to go through that, but then now being able to use this, this, I mean, this little tiny popper. I mean, it's just nuts when you think about it and how, um, you know, just in the hardship of all that, how this gift that you got, and I don't know if maybe you realized it at the time before your dad's death of that that was going to be the thing that was going to, you know, allow you to help you to get through it or not, but the the way God is able to use some stuff like that, things that we would never have on our radar to really just to to change us is, is sometimes just such a beautiful yeah. gift. I, I think, you know, I've, I've watched so many people find joy in catching fish on, on this bug. And it, you know, that opened my eyes a little bit. Um, I've got a great church, um, but there were a couple people that really helped me kind of think about this message even more. And, uh, one was um, Roel. I don't know if you guys know who he is, but Roel Guevara um, with the Ors Foundation and um, Project Healing Waters. Um, my dad was a 100% disabled veteran. He was a uh, U.S. Navy uh, submariner. 
uh, got sick on the sub, um, didn't know he was sick until it really kind of took in, took a toll, um, ended up with gout and gangrene and, and uh, uh, strep throat and the strep throat never got cured. And that's what caused some of his kidney problems later down the road. But being a hundred percent disabled um, and being on that kidney machine for years, there were so many things about that through the VA that helped us as a family. Um, I was given a full ride tuition scholarship. Now I, I didn't do very well with that. Uh, when I finally started having to pay for it myself, I, you know, that was a, that's a different story, but, you know, um, but through that, you know, these guys are using fly fishing to help men souls, um, whether it's fixing people, uh, just getting their mind off of things that may be PTSD or if it's a, a child like the Mayfly Project that's uh, uh, dealing with a um, just a difficult time that, as a, a foster care child that just needs to get out of that environment for a little bit. Um, fly fishing, being in nature, being in God's creation, and getting out in that, in that creation and just the vivid colors, the time, the experiencing all of it it's healing to the soul whether they realize that or not there there's a healing process to it and um, so the, all of that tied together has really helped uh, bring it together i didn't ever want to push it on my kids but both my boys enjoy it um, i don't know if it's as their passion like it is mine um, my girls i think would love it too and, and we've all we've taken them all to dry run creek and to other places and ponds and creeks on the farm, things like that. And, and they have a great time when they do it, but I, you know, I never wanted to force them into it. I wanted it to be something that they wanted to do. And so I think it's something they'll probably come back to as they, as they grow older, for sure. For sure. And uh, I just want to say thank you to what you're doing, getting these bugs in people's hands. And I think for me and Caleb, the bug is just, I think it's, we, we realized that is the small part of it. We were more drawn to just what you're doing as far as, um, you know, when you package them and you, we got our package and I mean, obviously the bugs were amazing. And we looked at him and I was like, man, look at all this stuff he's doing when he sends this to people. This, he's got the gospel story in there. He's got the original article you were talking about, about your dad's bug. Mm -hmm. I think the 2002 article, you know, I immediately read that. It was, I mean, I got my package that day. It was like Christmas morning. I was just pumped to just open up and look at it. It was so cool. And uh, so, for, obviously, thank you for just uh, th taking some time for us to, to give us some of those bugs that we're going to fish and hope we fish for a long time. And they they are they're awesome. The fishing part of it is cool, but I think what you're saying is more important, what you've done with this ministry. I mean, it's a ministry, man, that you have successfully still, still done. And so we want to let people know um, you can find the Sam's One Bug. <laughs> uh, it has its own Instagram account, correct? That's correct. Yeah. At Sam's One Bug. At Sam's One Bug. So it's the only at Sam's One Bug out there. And so once we post some of these pictures and you see some of these bugs and, you know, you want to start fly fishing for warm water fish, there's no better bug. Uh, Wade will tell you, he, 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 I'm sure he gets tons of requests, so don't be too hard on him. He, he does have a full time. <laughs> he's not just sitting in his device all day long every day, right? <laughs> Whipping these bad boys out. But uh, is there another way that people can contact you other than that, Wade? Uh, through email, samsonebug at gmail.com. Um, you can send an email there and I'll send you the entire story, um, information about it, and just make sure when you 
send that email, add your address to it so that I can get bugs to you. As you did say, two things. One, you know, I do get backed up at one point in this year. Um, I had over 500 people on a list and wow. just working through that list. Um, and so I, I think I've probably given out somewhere in the neighborhood of 15,000 bugs in the last Holy I don't know, few years. And it's, so I got it's time consuming. Um, but it's also expensive. Um, yeah. so, you know, I'm trying, I'm working with a few companies right now to try and reduce some of my costs. I, I gotta say, um, Brandon at Riverside, uh, fly shop guys, if you are in the area of Alabama, Tennessee, and you need a fly shop, look up Brandon. He's on the Sipsy river there. Uh, he's been great about getting me bulk, uh, foam and, uh, other tying supplies and just all kinds of stuff. But Brandon's thank you, buddy. It's, you've been phenomenal. Uh, also A-Rex hooks. I reached out to just about every hook company because two things, shipping and hooks are my biggest cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I reached out to just about every hook company. My dad tied on Mustad religiously. That was his hook. Um, and I've been tying on TM code just because I like the hook. It stays sharp. Uh, it's, it's a great hook uh, for the size of the bug. And so I reached out to, um, to Mo at A-Rex in Denmark. And man, he, he has been phenomenal. And he, he hooked me up and said, Hey, look, let's, let's try and figure out what hook you need. Uh, send you some samples. We'll talk about it. Um, see what actually works out. Uh, Brandon Bales with Panther Branch Bugs actually said, Hey, reach out to them. Uh, that's the only thing I'll tie on. And they're great hooks. If you haven't fished his little hatchling crawl, dude, that thing is phenomenal. It catches trout. It catches bass. It catches brim. It catches everything. And it's about the size of a penny, but it is fantastic. And the hook on it is just stellar. So it rides hook up. Um, it looks just like a baby crawdad in the water. And it, it is a great dropper or off of an indicator. Phenomenal. Um, and he, if you don't know who Brandon is, he ties some of the best hair bugs around. I, I, I used to deal in deer hair all the time back in the early eighties and nineties. And, and it's a, it's an art in itself. And if you haven't ever tried it there, there's, it's a very special technique. It so. is a very frustrating art, but it is a good <laughs> art for sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's got it down to the yeah, science. He, he is one of the, the best I've seen. Man. For sure. Um, so, you know, thanks to those guys, uh, you know, there's a few guys that really helped promote uh, the story. Stephen Rock Arts uh, with Alabama Fly Fishing has done a great job. I have a, a, one of the guy, a dear friend that showed up at the shop in 1995, 96. And um, his name is Chris Story. And Chris has been through a lot in the last few years. Um, he lost his wife uh, right after Christmas. She was a plant manager at GE and here in Decatur. Um, and I think the stress of the world and stress of, of work just got to her. And um, shortly after Chris lost her, um, uh, he lost his mom and to pretty much to COVID. She got COVID, never really got well and, and just got sick. And so in just a short time, um, you know, he, he lost his, his wife and his mom. And, Chris and I have been uh, good fishing buddies for a very long time. Um, we spent many a, a great trip out in Arkansas, uh, 
many, many days on the water fishing for brim and bass and smallmouth. And he spent a lot of time with my dad when, when I couldn't um, years ago. And he's become like a brother to me in a lot of ways and um, still, you know, still great friends. And so just, um, but it's, again, kind of over the silly little bug. Uh, he and I, we, you know, we, he loves it. And he and I hit off, hit each other off on that with that bug fishing for brim out on Guntersville. Uh, it just became a, a friendship for life. That's so cool. Well, man, we, uh, we love that. And we talk about that a lot of just, you know, it's this fishing thing is literally just a catalyst for a lot of great relationships and a lot of great really things. Is. And we see that really well in your story, Wade. So, uh, thank you for sharing it and thank you for what you're doing with the Sam's one bug and everyone out there listening, go check it out. Uh, follow them on Instagram and, uh, make sure to go check out the Sam's one bug and you might have to wait a little while because I know he gets backed up, but uh, shoot, him, shoot him a message if you want some, if you want to fish some awesome bugs and some awesome warm water species. And one uh, thing I'll say, and he, he mentioned it, if you, maybe you're listening to our podcast and you're not the biggest fisherman or you're just listening because you heard Wade had a cool story, um, there's a way to help support Wade, and we'll make sure and put that in the show notes and um, send him an email. Hey, I just thought I'd want to support you with some of your costs because you're doing this great thing. Um, as a ministry, we'll make sure to reach it out there. But Wade, we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your evening to sit down with the dads on the fly. One, to talk to us about this awesome ministry and just your relationship with your father. And we always talk about being dads on the fly, how important. And I think what we're seeing here is a relationship that started when you were a young kid and what it's done and how important it is to your life now through fishing and through being out outdoors. So thank you for that. Thank you for what you do, man. Um, and of course, thank you for including us on that list of a couple guys that got a, a couple bugs to fish. We look forward to fishing them with our kids for for many years to come. Excellent. If you have questions, guys, about it, or just you know, if you're not having success on it, I, I tell people all the time: the bug does the work itself. Just cast it out there and let it sit. And if it, if you're fishing a stream, just put it in those places where you know fish ought to be. Something's going to hit it. It you know it just it's just crazy some days, but. If you're not having success on a particular color, my dad said fish yellow. yellow <laughs> right. Stephen would probably argue with me and say chartreuse, but I'm telling you that yellow and orange leg is hard to go wrong. That's awesome, so. man. Well, Wade, thank you so much for your time. And thank everyone, you thank you for listening to this episode of Dads on the Fly. And until next time, tight line. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Dads on the Fly podcast. We hope this episode has inspired and encouraged you as a parent or an angler as we wade through faith, family, and fishing all on the fly. Make sure to check us out at dadsonthefly.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dads on the Fly. Shoot us a message as we always love hearing from you all. If you'd like to check out any Dads on the Fly merchandise, you can find it there as well. And as always, if you can, leave us a rating or review and share this podcast with a friend. Until next time, tight lines. Thank you.